Kelly, welcome to the Talking, Learning and Teaching podcast. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. So we're going to talk about well-being today. So, Kelly, you've worked in academia a long time. And generally speaking, do you feel that the academic environment is conducive to supporting positive mental health and well-being? And if it's not, has it always been this way? And if it hasn't, what has changed? Apologies for that long question there, but I thought we'd start with a bit of a of a big one. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really good question and quite a difficult one to answer, I think. Um, in terms of the environment being conducive to supporting mental health and well-being, I think it, it really depends a little bit. And part of that is down to sort of the nature of, of the work that we do. We are really lucky in that the, the nature of our, our roles and our jobs is quite flexible. And I think that has massive advantages in terms of mental health and well-being. But I also think it carries quite a lot of disadvantages as well. From a from my perspective, um, being a being a parent, the flexibility is really positive because it means I can work things around, you know, my family life. And if I need to sort of start earlier or later or finish earlier or later, I've got that flexibility. So for me, that's really important for my my well-being. The disadvantage of that is you can start earlier or later and finish earlier or later. And I think in some ways that flexibility means that work is never done. Um, and I think we've evolved over the years to to have this kind of culture of very long working hours, always being available, kind of going above and beyond what we perhaps would do if we worked in in a different kind of industries. And I think part of that is expectation of of our organisations. I think part of that also comes from the people who are attracted to careers in in higher education. I think generally the people that come in are very committed, very driven, very passionate about what they do, and that going over, you know, going above and beyond kind of naturally happens rather than it than it being enforced. So I think. I think the environment can be conducive, but I think there are lots of things that that maybe make it more complicated, may make the picture more complicated um, than that. And in answer to the second part of your question about what's changed, I think as an industry or as a sector, we've been hit over the last sort of 10 years or so by lots of huge external factors that have changed the nature of what we do. And and I'm, I'm thinking very broadly here about the growth in student numbers that's put pressure on on staff, the introduction of higher student fees and the growing sort of satisfaction culture, which again is putting pressure on on academic um, staff. More recently, things like increased competition. So, you know, there's new providers within the sector now that are um, driving the, the business of education in different ways. You know, we're seeing big corporations coming in and offering these short bite-sized type um, education opportunities, which are meaning that we're having to involve technological changes and growth. I mean, I think that's been a massive one and, and goes hand in hand with COVID really in that during that period, we all learned to work in very different ways. Um, we were able to work from wherever we were. We could work all the time if we wished. We could connect with anybody virtually. We can teach online. 
So there's there's never really um, an excuse anymore to not be available or to not be fully connected. And I think um, I think all of those things have have further added to the pressure and the expectation on on academic staff, which I don't think has been wholly positive in terms of of mental health and well-being. And I think we are beginning to see post-COVID burnout probably peaking amongst academics now, which I think is really interesting because there was an awful lot of attention given to this when we came back post-pandemic and the sort of transition back into the working environment two years down the line. I actually think that situation is probably having more of an impact than it was maybe a couple of years ago when we were we were living with sort of post-COVID early restrictions. I mean, so much of what you said in answer to those, well, I think there's about three questions in there, wasn't there, rather than one. So again, apologies for that. But in answer to those questions, I mean, I think one of the interesting things for me is that actually the role of an academic, you know, does actually encompass many positive things from a mental health and wellbeing perspective, as you rightly pointed out, you know, the flexibilities, etc., but it's a bit of a double edged sword, isn't it? As you also said, because actually, you know, those flexibilities can mean that, you know, you're never you're never away from work. are You You know, you're working in the evenings, you're working at weekends, you're online, you know, you can always be contactable and you're always available for work, if you like. I think obviously you then mentioned the pandemic and, and kind of the impact that that's had. I mean, the next question really kind of leads on from that quite nicely. So, I mean, what aspects of the modern academic role do you feel perhaps contribute to poorer or worsening mental health and well-being? Yeah, I think, you know, this the notion of expectation and availability that I've already spoken about, I think are significant here. And the fact that, you know, our work is ongoing. You know, there are very few tasks that we do that are short, completed, put aside. The nature of the work that we do, I think, can be can be problematic in that it's very much ongoing. You have to manage your your time and your your sort of workloads independently and that can be quite challenging. But I think the other the other big thing aside from those kind of external um, pressures and things that we've already spoken about is opportunity and I think this is perhaps for me the best and worst thing about being an academic. We are so fortunate that we work in an environment that is always evolving, always changing, always growing. There's always new opportunities. There's always new things you can get involved with, new roles you can take on, new things you can do. And, I, you know, that is fantastic. But at the same time, I think that is one of our biggest threats um, in trying as individuals. And maybe this is a but maybe this is more of a personal revelation than anything, but trying to identify you know which of those opportunities to follow and which to to say no to and i think and i I have this conversation a lot with with sort of early career staff that i'm working with who sort of come in and they want to progress and they want to kind of do everything all at once and it's really hard to say to them sometimes what what's your what's your niche where are you where do you really want to develop what do you really want to follow and and i think that can be really challenging because it can be completely overwhelming, this sort of sense of wanting or needing to do a little bit of everything. You know, we need to be active researchers. We need to be good teachers. We need to connect externally with people that are doing um, similar roles to us. We need to keep our own knowledge up to date, both in our subject areas and in terms of our 
our teaching and I think that's the most challenging aspect of being an academic this kind of sense of it's all a bit overwhelming sometimes you know I, I've got to cover all of these things this I guess this kind of like pressure to do everything um, and I don't know whether that that's a, a common pressure that other people feel as well but it's definitely something that throughout my career I've I've felt particularly in order to progress you know you need to be able to demonstrate that you are hitting all of these various targets and boxes and I think that can be detrimental um, to to mental health and well-being because I think sometimes you do get this sense that you just can't do everything and, and maybe you just can't do everything as well as you'd like to and, and that I think can be quite a difficult thing to deal with. Again there was so much in that that really resonated with me. I think the first thing that resonated was this idea that the work is ongoing and it, it never feels like it gets finished. So mm. my dad's a painter and decorator and many years ago I used to work with him and one of the, one of the nice things about working with him is that we would we would start a job and we would see it through until it was finished and then it would be finished and we would move on to the next job. And there was a, a really nice element of kind of closure about yeah. that. It was like, yeah, we've done it, you know, we've got good feedback, we've been paid and we can kind of move on. And there was something that made you feel quite good in that. And and that doesn't always happen in the same way in, in higher education, does it? It feels like it's a constant sort of treadmill of of work that almost never ends. So I think that was something that I definitely picked up on. I think the other thing that you mentioned there is the kind of expectation around, you know, it's a very sort of hierarchied structure, isn't it? And and there's an expectation that we will all climb the ladder. Um, and I think what you mentioned there, it's like you have to wear more and more hats, don't you, to be able to climb that ladder. I was saying to some trainee teachers a while ago that, you know, it's not just about being a teacher now. You've got to be a learning technologist and you've got to be a mental health and well-being expert and you've got to understand you know, lots of different things, way, way more than when I started in, in higher education. It was just about knowing your subject. And, you know, even sort of teaching proficiently wasn't that high on the agenda. It is obviously much more now. So, you know, in order to climb that ladder, it, it can be quite, you know, there's a lot to get right, isn't there? And there's a lot of boxes to tick, as you as you mentioned. And I think that can make people feel quite overwhelmed and quite pressured. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've sat with colleagues that are, you know, looking or wanting to get a promotion and we've kind of gone through the the criteria with them and and they get a bit panicky about well how do I demonstrate that and you know what about, what does that mean and it it gets a bit stressful for them so I think you know that that was something that really really resonated and it rolls on nicely actually to the next question because we're going to talk about supporting mm. and developing staff and career paths and all this type of thing so I mean as someone that plays an active role in supporting and developing staff do you think we do enough staff development work that focuses on creating the conditions for positive mental health and well-being? So I'm, I'm not talking about remedial work, yeah. but work that intentionally addresses well-being. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, a, a big question. And I think, you know, regrettably, I think, no, we don't. But at the same time, I think we have really good intentions. Um, and I think particularly, you know, when we're working with those who are coming into academia for the first time, starting out on their journeys, we do talk about sort of managing careers or and increasingly now, I mean, not something that I would have done five, six years ago necessarily with new staff. But now I think attention is beginning to turn to how do we ensure that 
people get off to a really positive start on their career pathways. I think in general, universities have got a way to travel in terms of creating an environment that positively supports mental health and well-being. I think there is a huge amount of, of well-being work ongoing. There are lots of well-being initiatives within university settings. Um, and I think we say a lot of the right things about being committed to staff well-being and supporting people to you know, take time out if they need to and, and all of those various things. But I don't think at the moment that we're necessarily following through on a lot of that. And as you said, in, in response to my last um, answer, the expectations on academics has cha have changed so much. I mean, I, I started working in, in higher education in 2006. And as you said, you know, then it was very much about knowing your subject and teaching the students. The role is completely different now. Um, and there is this expectation on anybody who comes in that they will continue to work their way up the ladder. It doesn't seem to be acceptable to come in and kind of stay at a particular level. There is this kind of ongoing, ongoing pressure. Um, but I think, yeah, universities are primarily still focused on on remedial, as you mentioned, but also a lot of the well-being initiatives, although they're well-intentioned, um, don't really get to the, the crux of the problem. And I think what we need to be thinking about is broader environmental change within universities. You know, we need to be having conversations with people about not working out of hours about turning their emails off in an evening and at a weekend and if they're on leave not answering emails or or not working on research papers or, or whatever it ever it needs to be and and getting into a habit of making sure that we've got that protected time within our working week to do the things that we need to do in order to progress and and that's something really i think that needs to be modeled from the top down um, and i think this is very much part of the the problem and where the expectation and, and some of the pressure comes from. We see those who have have made it, those who have you know got to the top, or who are you know the senior leaders in our institutions who are working really long hours, who are um, you know responding to things, sending out things late in the late in the evening. And I think now that we are kind of moving into those more senior roles as well, we've got to try and role model not doing those things so that those who are coming up beneath us are seeing that actually you can succeed and you can be successful and, and not compromise on your well-being. So I, I I think that, you know, the remedial work is there and I think the support if well-being issues arise is excellent. I have personally had, you know, great experience at my own institution of, of when burnout hit. Um, great support from occupational health from human resources and from my from my own team and I think we're getting very good at that but I think you know from a public health perspective and that's very much where I, I started my career we need to step back now and we need to go back and think about the culture and the environment that we're working in and and how we use that to create better conditions for staff moving forwards yeah I agree I think 
again, there was so much of that 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 made me start thinking and reflecting. I think it was, you know, Simon, I think it was Simon Sinek was was talking about work life balance. And I think he said something like, why should it be a balancing act? You know, it's like that there should be two distinct and separate entities almost and I think we often talk about work-life balance don't we in the in the higher education sector and how difficult sometimes it can be to find that balance because it is a bit of a balancing act I mean we've all been in situations where we've had to work in the evenings and certainly at the weekends I mean that's just a a standard thing isn't it it's just a you know that's just what happens but you have to question whether that should be the way things happened You, you know especially given how more aware we are now of of the impact of those sorts of things on our on our mental health our well-being our time and and the risk of burnout i mean you mentioned a little bit there about academic career pathways and supporting mm. new staff and it it links nicely to the to the final question that i've got actually kelly so you know, do you think it's important to work with new academics to support them in developing a sustainable career path from a well from a well-being perspective so for example I've known colleagues that have got into academia and then left within two years due to being burned out. Do you think we could do more to plan the career journey in such a way that such instances of, say, burnout could be avoided? Yeah, I absolutely do. And and this is something that I've started to introduce into the, the staff development programmes that, that we run at Lincoln. We we talk about sustainable careers and, and by that we mean careers that can be maintained over long periods without people hitting those burnout points but still making sure that they're able to progress within their careers and personally I think and I kind of hinted at it earlier but personally for me that is about encouraging new academics just to slow down a little bit and I think that's really really important I think there is a tendency. And again, I think, you know, this comes from expectation. It comes from the type of people who are attracted to careers in higher education. But there is this tendency to come in and to want to progress really fast and and demonstrate that you can do everything all at once. And I think we need to spend time with our new starters, our new academics, and, and really get them to think about what it is they want their journey their career to look like and i don't think we do that very well at the moment i think there's a huge amount of work we could do to develop early career mentoring very much like the system that they have with with this with school sector and the early career teachers type framework i think something like that in higher education would be fantastic where everybody's got a structured kind of mentoring program in that early maybe two-year period where they're really developing their craft as a teacher, finding their feet as a researcher um, and and working out who they are and what they want their particular particular niche to be. And you mentioned um, a quote there about, you know, balance. And I, I came across one not long ago and I can't for the life of me remember where I read it or who said it, but I, it really stuck with me because it said, that successful people don't do everything. Success, successful people focus, and that's why they're successful. And I think that's really important. And I think this is where I went wrong early on. I was, I couldn't quite work out what I wanted my niche to be. So I did a little bit of a lot of different things. And it's taken me a while to pull the threads of my career together. And now they're very clear to me. 
but I think we need to do that work earlier on with with academics. Um, and so I, I think there is a lot more work that we could do to help structure career paths early on. The other thing that I'm very passionate about and I, I would like to see more attention giving to is is putting the well-being of staff higher on the agenda. I think that students quite rightly are top of the priority list. Their experience, their well-being is absolutely central to everybody. But I also feel that staff are very important and I think sometimes the needs of staff get overlooked by the priorities and the strategies of, of institutions. But I, I, I observe and I, you know, I, as I said, I, I feel very strongly that if we want to have happy students, happy, satisfied, achieving students, we need to have happy, satisfied, achieving staff as well. And 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 that's why, you know, I think this is a really important question and one that maybe we don't talk about enough. We We need to get to a point where we are we are really nurturing those who are coming into the profession and developing their careers in academia at the beginning so that we've got them long term that so that they're they feel that they're making progress that they feel that they're developing all the skills that they need but they're given the space to do that as well so i i think there's a lot of work to do around transitions into academia and you know we've seen this over lots of years haven't we and we've already mentioned historically when you came in to this kind of role, all you had to be was good at your good at your subject, perhaps a researcher in in your field. But we need to start viewing um, working in higher education as an academic, as more of a profession, as a long term career, and making sure that people have got all of those skills that they they need to be successful over the long term at the start of that journey, and and perhaps not just kind of expecting that people are going to instinctively know how to do all of the things that they're being asked to do because you know we both know that's not the case that you you know you learn how to do this job by by getting it wrong quite a lot or i did in my case anyway by getting things wrong a lot to start with you know it's very much a trial and everything and i think there's an awful lot we can do to um to take some of that kind of guesswork out of it and yeah, very strongly feel that a really robust kind of mentoring system early on would would play a massive part in that. I mean, I agree with pretty much everything you said there. I think one thing that popped into my mind that I've always found really intriguing about the learning and teaching aspects of working in higher education is that there is no warm up period, is there? There's no simulation. You're straight in at the deep end, aren't you? You know, yeah. it's not like, you know, if a if a young professional footballer, when they get started, they probably play in the reserve team before they play in the first team, you know, and obviously the reserve team, it doesn't really matter. It's just to sort of get them to develop the skills and capabilities to play in the first team. There's none of that in higher education, which is strange, isn't it, given the high stakes nature of, of what we're trying to do, especially with the expectations and fees and all this kind of thing. And I've always felt that that is perhaps a bit of a route to burnout in many ways. It's like, yeah, we, we experience it in our institution, you know, where we're sort of working with um, participants on, say, our PG cert programme. And they've literally been teaching in HE just a few months. They've been with the institution a few months and they're leading modules or, you know, they've been asked to lead a programme. Absolutely. And, it, yeah. and it's like, wow, like, you you, you know, you, 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 you 
barely have any experience in this sector and you're already being given quite substantial leadership yeah. roles and, and you don't even know what you're doing yet. So, like, it's no surprise, is it, actually, that you're yeah. going to get burned out and you're going to think this is the most you know challenging thing that you've you've ever done. So, yeah, I, I think that idea of kind of making that deliberate and intentioned journey from the start with that supportive mentoring I think is a is a fantastic way forward in in relation to those things yeah and I think it's really important that you know we we kind of try and stop that feeling of people being thrown in at the deep end um I mean Phil Race wrote a brilliant um resource didn't he that's called in at the deep end that was written for PGR students primarily but I've actually used with early career academics as well because it perfectly captures that experience that we all have of being new and literally just told to go and uh, go and, you know, get on with the job, essentially, when you don't really know what you're doing. And I think there needs to be that kind of um, I think you called it a warm up period, didn't you? Um, some sort of protection in those early maybe two years where people are not thrown into programme leadership because, you need time to learn systems and processes and how universities work and all universities are so different as well that yes I think we need to really think about that early part of the journey um not just from a mental health and well-being perspective but as you said you know from a student experience perspective there's massive amount riding on programs and delivery of modules in terms of things like NSS and other you know student metrics and we shouldn't be expecting people who are not experienced academics to to be carrying that kind of kind of pressure early on. I don't think in any other profession you'd see that. So I think, yeah, I think there's an awful lot of work to do there. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I mean, we're massive fans of Phil Race on the Talking, Learning and Teaching podcast. Phil was a guest some time ago. So anybody listening to that to this you know get hold of that resource in at the deep end as well as anything else that that phil's ever written kelly thanks so much it's been really really enlightening talking to you today thanks again for being a guest on the talking learning and teaching podcast thank you for having me it's been really really interesting and uh, really enjoyable too thanks kelly thank you